Rethinking Democracy, the podcast in which we ask, where are we, how did we get here, and where might we be going? In the spring of 2020, as many countries went into lockdown, the Trinity Longroom Hub, Arts and Humanities Research Institute, Trinity College Dublin, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Centre at Columbia University organised a webinar series to explore the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on democracies worldwide. And now, as we get used to living with COVID, we're back to once again rethink democracy. I'm Elspeth Payne. I'm the Beata Schuler Research Fellow in the Trinity Longroom Hub, where I work on the Institute's Crisis of Democracy project. I'm also the host of this podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by Lilith Arcadia. Lilith is a former Marie Curie co-fund fellow in the Trinity Longroom Hub and assistant professor in the Department of Foreign Languages and Literature at the National Taiwan University. Lilith works on pretext in the construction and concealment of ethical and policy stances, actions and identity. She's also involved in the Hublic Sphere podcast. Lilith spoke at the first event in the original Rethinking Democracy series, a behind-the-headlines panel discussion. I'd like to propose some ideas for during the pandemic, but also afterwards, because the threats to democracy during the pandemic are the same threats we faced before and will face in the future. The difference now is that those in power can use the pandemic as a pretext for accelerating the attack on democracy and continuing certain attacks past the time when the uses of the measures make sense in the context of the pandemic. And I think what was so important and so powerful about Lilith's talk is that she went beyond identifying a problem to provide practical tools, a series of tests, so that we can all determine, and when necessary, reject pretext. I want to give you the discursive superpower of catching these lies with three tools that are highly relevant right now. Shifting justifications, omission, and false promises. First, shifting justifications jump from one justification to another. It also often involves throwing out many justifications. The second strategy is omission. This conceals or leaves out essential information that would explain more plausible motives. The third tool is false promises, what, in my academic work, I refer to as unobtaining outcomes. False promises look for the justifications that don't yield the promised result. Lilith, welcome back. Since we last spoke, some of the developments you foresaw have happened. Many of the pretext techniques you identified have been deployed. And the threat to civil liberties you warned of has, in fact, in many respects, been hijacked and become a rallying cry of the extreme right. At the end of your talk, you warned that, after the plague, we need to be more alert, to seek accountability in every area, from government to ourselves, to protect democratic ideals. Now, we're not, unfortunately, quite at the after stage yet. But it certainly feels like we're in a very different place. What threats and challenges do democratic systems and cultures now face? Democracy has faced a range of attacks in the first almost year of the pandemic. But one I find particularly important is how the unreliability of information during this pandemic produced epistemic uncertainty. 
Could you explain what you mean by epistemic uncertainty? So epistemology describes how we understand how people come to not only have the knowledge they have, but also to give certain knowledge authority. So epistemic uncertainty is the state of not trusting the origin of your knowledge, not trusting knowledge from certain factors that those in power can exploit to unsettle trust or present fabrications as possible facts. Public dissolution of trust in response to incomplete knowledge and misinformation about COVID is already quite visibly threatening democracy in the US and could have lasting impact on belief in truth upon which democracy depends. From the beginning of the pandemic, our understanding of COVID has been constantly changing. The symptoms made COVID-19 look like a respiratory illness, and then it took months for medical researchers to treat it as cardiovascular. We're still learning about the long-term impact, incubation time, how age and socioeconomic or health conditions affect patients, and so on. Changing definitions and approaches is simply part of responding to emerging information. But commentators can then exploit such changes to seed doubt about anything medical researchers are proposing. They can say, they were wrong about it attacking the lungs, so how do we know it exists at all? Or in the case of Trump peddling hydroxychloroquine, he took advantage of an information void to fill it with a proposal that suited his own political and financial interests, making him look like he was addressing the pandemic and pushing a drug produced by a company in which he owned a small stake. So looking for the omitted information that would suggest more plausible motives can help us identify Trump's claim that hydroxychloroquine would help cure COVID as a pretext. Some of the unreliable information reflects intentional manipulation of the public. For instance, early in the pandemic, the World Health Organization and the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention were advising people against wearing face masks, claiming that masks would not prevent the spread of COVID. That was what I term a pretext, a justification given to manipulate the population or conceal motivating reasons. Health officials were actually worried about a mask buying panic and wanted to increase PPE, personal protective equipment, supplies for medical professionals before causing a run on masks. The result was that when the advice changed, people distrusted the public health officials who had misled them. The US has turned into a petri dish for COVID as well as the dangers of epistemic uncertainty. People are actually believing QAnon conspiracies, COVID denialism, anti-vax rhetoric, and other myths that appeal to people's distrust of facts and see doubt of any truth. Because when people don't know what is true and which authorities they can trust, they are primed to doubt everything or believe anything and are susceptible to conspiracy theories. So have the tools that we need to determine the pretext changed? In the behind the headlines discussion, I shared three of my tests for identifying pretext. And today I thought I'd introduce a fourth 
and that's the selective enforcement test. The classic example of selective enforcement revealing pretext is to condemn homosexuality by invoking Leviticus 18.22, yet to flaunt other passages from Leviticus that ban sleeping with a woman having her period or wearing mixed fabric. You could call this the hypocrisy test. Many commentators have pointed out the Republicans' hypocrisy in selective enforcement of election results because they are claiming that the election's presidential results are fake, yet the senatorial races are reliable because they won those. And how do you think the US experience fits with what we're seeing worldwide? In terms of the experience living in Taiwan, I think one of the reasons that the response to the pandemic has been so successful, uh, we haven't had a community transmission case in over 200 days. There's been a total of seven deaths and I think under 500 cases. One of the reasons that it has been so successful is that there is epistemic certainty and a sense of reliability of information. The government worked very hard from the beginning to be transparent and to respond to the pandemic in a way that gave responsibility to the people. Um, There's a recent Danish study that showed that people who are more empathetic are more likely to perform the actions that would protect their society from the spread of COVID. That people are willing to see themselves as part of a community and then be empathetic to the needs of others is really instrumental in helping a society fight COVID because it leads to behaviors like mask wearing and um, self-isolating when one has symptoms. So this really is about democratic cultures as well as democratic systems. Absolutely, and believing in the systems, believing that the government is giving you the best information they have and not a pretext because they don't want you to go out and buy masks. And also, and this connects to the issue of um, civil liberties, also trusting that the government is not going to abuse the information they're collecting from you and that they have your best interests and the best interests of the public at large at heart. And looking further ahead, another six months or a year to a time when we're hopefully benefiting from the vaccines we're hearing a lot about at the moment, to return to some sort of normality. What do you think this future will look like? Well, I hope that we successfully protect societal trust in evidence-based knowledge and that we can discredit the conspiracy theory-fueled attempts to undermine democracy in the US and elsewhere. Yet we've seen in this pandemic the danger of epistemic uncertainty arising from distrust of international institutions like the WHO, the devaluation of academic authorities, including scientists, and confusion from the changing information. So it's possibly generalizable to future events because in any disaster, researchers, politicians, the media, public health agencies, and so forth won't have all of the necessary information from the very beginning, which can be confusing to a public looking for confident explanations, especially in a world used to Googling for immediate concrete answers. As we are recovering from this disaster, as our governments pursue 
as you put it, a return to some sort of normality, I'm concerned about how those governments will use the recovery as a pretext to advance their own interests and ignore other urgent matters facing the world. U.S. President-elect Joe Biden has announced that ending the pandemic and economic recovery will be his priorities, despite over 11,000 scientists signing a statement published in the Journal of Bioscience urging world leaders to act immediately to address climate change. They wrote, quote, we declare clearly and unequivocally that planet Earth is facing a climate emergency and we must change how we live. They specify economic and population growth are among the most important drivers of increases in CO2 emissions from fossil fuel combustion. Therefore, we need bold and drastic transformations regarding economic and population policies. They're warning that the climate crisis is caused by excessive consumption. Yet, Biden's economic recovery involves protecting that excessive consumption. Individual citizens are facing not only climate change, but more immediately, homelessness, joblessness, lack of access to health care, crippling student loan debt, and other concerns that are best addressed by the democratic socialist economic policies that Biden is saying are too radical and which the pandemic and economic recovery would provide him a handy pretext to ignore. So I'm concerned that Biden is going to focus on these goals of ending the pandemic and boosting economic recovery at the expense of very immediate personal needs to citizens in the US and our long-term needs as a globe to address climate change. And if our leaders use ending the pandemic and repairing the economy as pretexts not to address inequality, injustice, and climate change, we may just be jumping out of the pandemic and into the fires of climate change. And is now a particularly good time to act to address these problems? Earlier in the pandemic, over the summer, I heard a lot of optimism in academic circles that this was precisely the moment when we could do that. that when governments are proving that they can take immediate drastic measures to protect their citizens against COVID, that they were also showing that they could take immediate drastic measures to protect citizens against, for example, climate change. And there was a lot of hope that this would be a moment when people recognized their shared issues with other citizens, recognized how inequality was affecting not only their neighbors, but also them, and that this would be a moment of change, that we would see the issues as they are, that we would have a little bit more free time to consider our role in them and to consider potentials for change, and that we would see that was a possible path forward. Uh, I read recently about a survey that people are now more concerned about inequality than before. And there wasn't a speculation of why that might be, but it's obvious that when you are involved in a worldwide disaster, that you could be at risk because of someone else's behavior or someone else's dangerous situation. 
that we would see how interconnected we are. And we would see that we need to protect our neighbors in order to also protect our own interests. So I think many of us still have hope that this is a moment when there is potential for change and paradigm shifting and progressive action to address the issues facing the world. It's only a question, I think, of holding our politicians accountable and really looking at where their motivations are coming from. So once people have these tools, the discursive superpowers, what actions can they take to go beyond knowing that something is wrong to hold these politicians and officials accountable? Even in a pandemic that limits our in-person public interactions, there are so many outlets for individuals to be involved. And on an individual level in particular communities, there is a, a possibility right now to be involved digitally in ways that weren't as active before. And a good example of this is how the election officials in Detroit, who were not going to certify the results of the election going in Biden's favor, held a town hall and it was flooded with voters who were irate, um, one of whom uh, the, the clip was replayed on a number of shows, telling them basically that they were going to go to hell if they didn't certify the election results. And they listened. I'm not saying that you should tell your elected officials to go to hell, but you should absolutely be involved. Call them up, attend the virtual town halls if possible, write for the new local newspapers, and talk to your fellow citizens. We've been hearing about the dangers of social media and the ways that it can be used by others to manipulate us. And yet it's still an avenue for us to be in touch with our communities and our communities also farther afield. So I would encourage everyone to think about the political situation, form their own critiques, reach out to the press, to their politicians and to their communities to talk through these issues because at the basis of democracy is, as I addressed, the knowledge and the trust in evidence-based knowledge. And as a rhetor, I have to say, it's also debate and discussion. So get out there and debate and protect democracy. Thank you, Lilith. And thank you for listening. The original series, Rethinking Democracy in an Age of Pandemic, ran for five weeks across April and May 2020. It engaged academics and journalists on questions about borders, marginalisation, inequality, the everyday and the public sphere. A free curriculum with the webinar recordings as well as suggested readings and resources for this original series has just been launched. More information on the project as well as links to the curriculum and all resources mentioned in this episode are available on the Trinity Longroom Hub website www.tcd.ie forward slash Trinity Longroom Hub or the Society of Fellow and Heyman Centre website www.heymancentre.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at TLR Hub and at SOF Heyman.